Hi, welcome to episode 29 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with host Matt Payne. Uh, this is part two of a two-part series uh, interview with uh, Joshua Cripps. Um, if you haven't listened to uh, episode 28 yet, um, definitely start there. Otherwise, this will feel really funky <laughs> um, because it's a con- uh, we jumped right in to continue a story that he was telling about a really amazing experience he had um, in New Zealand. Um, just a reminder, um, I have a Patreon page started up and, uh, I've got some bonus material from, uh, last week's interview and from this week's interview with, uh, Joshua Cripps that, uh, that you can check out if you're a $5 and up, um, supporter of the podcast. Uh, appreciate it. And as uh, usual, uh, please reach out to me. I love to hear back from the listeners, um, which is you guys. Uh, uh, Matt Payne photo, uh, Matt Payne photography, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, whatever, um, whatever you think is the best. Um, hope you enjoy the show and I uh, look forward to uh, hearing your comments. Thanks. So, yeah, so eventually we make it back to the hut, and I'm just utterly wrecked, man. And I thought I had destroyed my tripod, but it, it turns out it's it was good to go, and I'm still using it. But um, so we get back to the hut, and we're like, oh, boy, what do we do now? And call down to the Department of Conservation again and let them know the situation. They And it was the funniest thing because they go, you know, that's a, that's a shame. It sounds like an unfortunate situation, but we have to ask you a couple of questions to figure out whether or not it's actually an emergency. You know, <laughs> one, one, are you injured? Uh, no, we're not injured. Okay. Two, do you have food? You say, yeah, we brought about an extra day's worth of food if we ration. Okay. You know, and is the water supply at the hut still working? Yes, it's still working. Is the gas still working? Yes, the gas is still working. And the radio is obviously working. So you're inside, you're out of the weather, you have food, you're not injured, you have warm clothing you have water. This is not an emergency as much as it might suck. It's not an emergency, right? They said, even if it was an emergency, there's nothing we can do about it because it's blowing 130 K winds. And, you know, we can't send somebody up there in a, a snowmobile or on foot or in a helicopter in those kind of conditions. So all you can do at this point is hang tight. And, uh, and I'm going, man, I don't, Okay, I mean, I get that, but I don't want to hang tight because my flight home from New Zealand is the next day. So, <laughs> of course, it is. I got to, I got to kind of get out of here, and so I'm having really dumb thoughts. Yeah. Um, yeah. like, well, let's just wait and try again later, and see if this ice softens up at all. And uh, you know, at one point, I went back outside, and a, a fresh layer of snow, maybe about a, an inch of snow, had fallen on top of the ice and was providing surprisingly good traction. And I was like, well, I think we can do this. We should go for it. <laughs> and my friend, Jessica, God bless her. She was like, you're an idiot. I am not going outside. <laughs> she said, we have already faced, you know, but for the fact that we didn't slide off of that tiny rock you were on, we could be 
dead or severely injured right now, I am not putting myself back out in those kinds of risky conditions. And, um, and I was just, I was, it was just, again, just dumb. No, we can do it. We can do it. She's like, nope, I'm not going out, period. Good for her. At least I had the sense to say, okay, well, I'm not leaving you by yourself and I'm not going out by myself. So if you're not going out, then I'm not going out. Right. And, um, so we just hung in the, in the bunk, just literally doing nothing, like heating up bowls of hot water to put our feet in (laughs) and, um, you know, playing, uh, playing uh, Scrabble because she, she's French and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I was going to say I'm English speaking. <laughs> I try anyway. And, um, so we're just playing, you know, bilingual, uh, Scrabble and things like that just to kill the time. And, and then every morning and every evening we'd check in with, the the department of conservation and go, well, the storm is still coming. Um, Dude, you know, how, just hang how tight. How long were you up there? So, uh, and eventually we ended up staying there three days and, um, we ran out of food on the second day. And so at that point, um, it was again, just a, the funniest response, but it makes perfect sense. But so we called down, we're like, okay, guys, we have, we have actually run out of food now. (laughs) Uh, we've eaten our last apple and granola bar and they go, okay, you know, that checks enough of a tick box for us to say it's an emergency situation. And so they said, get a pen and some paper and write this number down. And this is the code to get into the warden's room. Oh. And in the warden's room, you'll find emergency supplies like extra sleeping bags and extra food and soup and pasta and things like that. And so we we got in there and it was a little bit like Christmas, man, because they had uh, they had, you know, dehydrated pudding and dehydrated soups and dehydrate all this, like so much tea. And so it was great. We just sat there and drank tea and soup. And you're and, thinking to yourself, um, like, why didn't I tell him the first day that I didn't have food? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're out of food. Oh, man. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, my toe really hurts. Oh, my God. I have but, like, um, sleeping bags and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And then also just to kind of pass the time, I, we ended up taking every single mattress from all 28 bunks and building an enormous fort out of them. <laughs> and yeah, I've got some pictures. I'll send you some of those for the, uh, the show notes. That would be funny. But, yeah, uh, sure. so, yeah. So we built this huge fort, which was awesome because like I said, the, the, the temperature inside the hut was around 28 degrees. And so it was just kind of unpleasant to be inside, but inside the mattress fort, uh, I think we were at about, uh, almost 40 actually yeah. when we were both inside, it was, it was amazingly kind of comfy and warm. And, <laughs> um, and so, you know, then we finally got to our, what turned out to be our last night there. And we called down to the department of conservation and they said, look guys, we've got a, uh, you know, we've got a weather break forecast for the morning. And if, if it does come through, we'll send a helicopter up to get you. And so, you know, we hit, we didn't sleep the first night because of the wind. We didn't sleep the second night because of crazy thunder. And I mean, the thunder and the lightning claps were shaking the, wow. uh, the hut and, and they were setting off avalanches and the avalanches were shaking the hut. And, um, and so then on the, that last night, you know, we can't, we can't sleep because we're too antsy about whether or not we're going to be able to get down from the hut. 
in the in the morning. And by this point, I have actually missed my flight back home to the right, U.S. And at that point, you're like, eh, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like once you accept it, it's just like so much in life, right? Once you accept it, it's okay. Yeah. And so, um, so next morning, you know, we're still we can still hear the wind shaking the hut, and uh, but it we eventually fell asleep. And the next morning, we wake up and it's it's quiet, silent. So I got my camera and tripod and I went outside and I swear it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen was a crystal clear bluebird sky day with no wind and about three feet of fresh snow covering everything. I mean, it was, it was legendary. It was the most pristine, beautiful scene i mean it was just so picturesque and of course the relief knowing that the weather was calm that the helicopter would be able to come was another thing too and you know even though the weather was clear we still had to have the helicopter because they had you know you got three feet of fresh snow yeah, that, on top of you would have had wind slab. oh my god crazy avalanche conditions so um, anyway, so they call us up and they said, you know, how's, how's the weather up there? You guys I said, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. It's beautiful. And they're like, cool. Um, in 30 minutes, a helicopter is going to show up and, uh, stay inside the hut and the rescue team will come get you. And so we did, the helicopter showed up, they came in, we, you know, we cleaned the whole hut up just because we had nothing else to do. We freaking washed every surface. It, like, it's like the least we can do is clean this hut. And so we made it spotless uh, while we were waiting. And then the rescue team came and grabbed us and we went in the helicopter. And the funny thing about where this hut is located is it's, it's just, just above park headquarters. You know, I mean, it's something like 700 meters up, but almost no linear distance. And so the helicopter ride back down was six minutes long. <laughs> That's and, funny, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And previously we had said, look, we, you know, we accept the responsibility for putting us in this situation. So um, we, if you need us to pay for the rescue efforts, we're willing to do that. And, you know, we're thinking, oh my God, what did we just get ourselves into with that? Because um, what is a helicopter rescue going to cost in the U.S., right? right? A couple thousand I can't even dollars at least. fathom it. Yeah, just, you know, five, six figures probably. And and so anyway, we get down there. We go meet with the park warden. And we have this big debriefing session about why did we go up? Why did we make the decisions we did? What could the park have done differently to help, you know, dissuade us and get good messaging across and all this stuff? And then eventually he goes, well, because you offered to pay the rescue fees. We are going to charge you. Um, and what we're going to charge is basically the helicopter flight time, which was six minutes up and six minutes down. So they charged us for 12 minutes of helicopter time, uh, which came out to 600 New Zealand dollars, which is about 400 US dollars. Not bad. And we split that. So. So we each paid 200 bucks and we got a scenic flight down from this hut. Uh, I mean, we, we walked away just shaking our heads in disbelief. Like, wow, I, I can't believe that. Uh, we didn't have to pay $10,000 to get our, our irresponsible asses shuttled off of this mountain. Wow, man. That's a, that's a, you're never going to forget that story. I mean, that's, that's, that's some no. legendary oh my gosh, shit. Yeah. I mean, I've had some, 
Yeah, it was. Uh, I've had some. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, Colin. I've had some similar situations here in the mountains in Colorado, but nothing that lasted days on end, or like you weren't sure if you were ever going to get out of there. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, and and we felt really fortunate, to be honest with you, to be able to have had that experience because the some of the lessons that you learn in the mountains you only learn by going through a really shitty experience. It's true. And and a lot of times those shitty experiences don't have a happy ending, Yeah, you know? Um, and so the fact that we could go through an experience like that and learn these lessons about preparedness and uh, planning for a worst case scenario and not overestimating our own abilities and have both of us come out with literally no injuries and no, like no, the worse for wear. It was kind of extraordinary. Uh, so we, we, like I said, we felt really fortunate to be able to have that lesson without the extreme consequences that could have resulted. Absolutely. <laughs> That's funny. As you're talking about this, um, I realized <clears throat> you and probably most listeners probably don't realize that, um, on my other website, I actually, for four years, I um, tracked and documented all of the mountaineering deaths in Colorado. And I talked about all of the things that you're talking about, like lessons learned and um, how to reduce the chances of your of being in an incident like that and things like that. And I actually started collecting all these statistics about mountaineering deaths and stuff like that. So it's, it's actually a subject that I like, I love to talk about, but it is it's kind of morbid in some ways because, you know, there's, I love what you said about that. Sometimes the best lessons you can learn are in the mountains. Cause it's true. I mean, there's so many bad things that can happen, but often don't because people just get lucky, you know, like, like you could have yeah. easily come out of that situation the same day. No big deal. Everything was fine, but like, that's right. Yeah. But things start cascading. The weather bit gets bad. You don't have the right gear. And then all of a sudden you're in a life and death situation when you thought you were just going out for an afternoon hike. <laughs> yeah. And imagine had we come out the same day, we, we would have probably felt even more confident in the next time we were in the mountains because we thought, oh yeah, we went through that shitty weather. Remember that? And we just came out and it was totally fine. So we're super awesome. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a, we, I could talk about this for so much, so long, dude. Like, yeah, there's so many lessons to learn about being in a bad situation. I um, I was in a bad situation a couple of years ago. Um, I was climbing uh, 14er here in Colorado with one of my climbing partners, and and um, we made a I made a really stupid decision to um, take a different way down, like a shortcut kind of, and we got into mm -hmm. this terrain that was off trail. And it was kind of one of those things like at first it was like, oh, this is fine. This is no big deal. And then, you know, five minutes into it, you're like, okay, this is like, we're going to die if we don't go back because this is, this rock yeah. is loose. Like if any, any minute now, this whole mountain is just going to come down on us. And I remember like I stepped on this one rock and like the whole like side of the mountain just came down in front of me <laughs> and I scared the living shit out of my climbing partner. But it was like that experience, that near death experience taught me a lot about what not to do next time, you know? Um, and I was, I started writing about it a lot more just because I felt like unless 
like you said, unless you go through one of those situations, uh, you, you're going to get even more confident and make even more mistakes. And I feel like the only way if you've not been through one of those situations is to read about it or hear about it from other people and live vicariously, I guess, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first things I did when I got back was I uh, took a avalanche training course. Yeah. And oh my God, when you, when you view the, the, your past experiences through the lens of that kind of knowledge, I was just, <laughs> uh, you know, it kind of makes you queasy you're like, thinking about. You're like, how am I alive? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it freaked me out a lot more in retrospect than in the actual moment in those situations. Yeah, totally. Well, shit, man, we just dropped like 40 minutes on a crazy story. So that's I was going to say, I was supposed to give you the short version and that was like 40 minutes. So I guess I have three more questions for you. Um, uh, the two are the kind of standard thing, but I asked, but the, the one question I wanted to ask you has someone who's, who's led a lot of workshops and, um, you know, you do a lot of teaching and things like that. Um, I'm sure that you've noticed over the years through through Instagram and things like that, that certain locations are becoming more and more popular and, and getting a lot more traffic and, and therefore there's a lot more um, negative consequences that come with that in terms of, you know, people damaging the location or just creating social trails or like you know, a lot of the stuff we read about, like in white pocket where people are blowing off smoke bombs and stuff like that, all the trophy hunting, the hunting and the bounty hunting that happens and people just trying to make a name for themselves. I'm curious, do you feel like, well, let me, before I ask the question, I feel like the, the park service and the government at some point is probably going to do something without our input to curtail visitation or to limit um, permits or to require us to do certain things to get permits and really and that's going to be detrimental to a lot of people um, like you that rely on those kinds of things for income so my question is based on all of that do you feel like there's something we should all be doing as a community to collaborate and to come up with some kind of um, solution or do you think there's something we should be doing about this yeah, you were talking about this with uh, Kane, yeah, right, yeah. with regard to Eric Stenson, yeah. like the the idea of best practices. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's such a complicated situation because on one hand, I really want people, I think everybody should build a some kind of a relationship with the natural world. I think it helps give you perspective about what's important and what's not important and view your own life with regard to how vast and long-standing these uh, parts of the natural world are to maybe give yourself some inkling of our actual importance. Um, so I want people to build those relationships, but the problem is people, th there seems to be a lack of communication or a lack of education that comes with the, the sharing of these locations. And so people get the first part of the message, which is, man, the outdoors is freaking rad. It's amazing. But there seems to be the second part of the of that message, which is, well, you should protect it and cherish it and leave it better than you found it because it is so amazing. That somehow seems to get lost mm -hmm. uh, in the in the noise. And I think actually um, photographers who are workshop leaders 
are in a really good position to help disseminate that kind of education. In fact, uh, for places like Death Valley, it's even a part of the permitting process that you have to teach your clients about leave no trace ethics. Mm, that's good. So that's really good. Um, so it's hard. I think somehow, I don't know, because I feel like a lot of landscape photographers, we are our own audience. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and so you, I might post something or you might post something or Kane might post something about leave no trace ethics and all the, all the other landscape photographers would be like, yeah, hell yeah, that's right. And then all the people we're trying to reach will never see it or somehow not uh, resonate with it somehow. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how, I mean, I think, yes, to answer your question, we formulating some kind of a, I mean, that those, those codes of good practice and ethics, they, they already exist. It's just getting the the message out there. So, um, I would, yeah, I would definitely encourage every photographer, uh, and I, I am guilty of not doing this enough myself, but to not just share the, the experience of photographing a place, but maybe what the place means to you and your own personal ethics on protecting a place. I mean, I don't know how to get that message out there other than just sharing it like that. Uh, it's not going to happen automatically. I know the parks try, but you know, most people probably don't visit the Yosemite website and search for leave no trace before right. deciding to go visit, you know? So, um, yeah, I'm, I think it's just up to all of us to try to encourage both parts of that message, uh, to get spread. Yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to think like, I think at some point there's, there's going to be a breaking point where the park service is going to be forced to either um, not give out permits anymore or to severely limit the number of them or to make people follow a very strict set of rules. And I think we're at this, this, this moment in time um, as landscape photographers where we have the opportunity to help, um, to help shape what we want those rules to be for ourselves. And so I guess I feel like, um, there is some, there is some, something to be said for coming together as a, as a group to collaborate on what we think those, those guidelines should be. And I think, of course, you know, that that's going to be hard to get consensus over, but, um, at some point it's going to be either we come up with it and, and, tell the park service, this is what we think is best, or it's going to be told to us and it's not going to be to our liking at all. Yeah. And I mean, I hope it's not that second case because like I said, I think the park service has a great, a great spokesman and every photographer who is leading a workshop. Those are the sort of people who should be more encouraged to, to, to lead workshops. If you're bringing that educational and uh, wilderness ethics based curriculum to the workshop, then I think that that kind of person should be encouraged to continue to teach. So, uh, and you know what, I, I, I try to be an optimist because I think, um, I think a lot of photographers go through an evolution where you get so excited about photography that you just want to take pictures and you start to think, well, I want this shot. And what's the harm going to be if it's just me and I jump over the line 
and I, you know, oops, I, I broke through some, uh, some crust in, uh, the, the salt flats in death Valley. So what? It's just one person. And I'm just trying to get this cool shot, right? Who cares if I walk through the wildflowers? Cause I'm trying to get this beautiful carpet. And then I think, you know, most people, uh, this is my optimist <laughs> speaking. I think most people get to a point where they realize, oh, I do have an impact on people and my actions do affect the people who follow me. Um, and I've seen that actually with quite a few. Um, I, I remember when I first got on Instagram, not to always go back to Instagram, that was one of the things that really annoyed me about the platform was all of the, oh, I'm just going to start this fire wherever I want and I'm going to camp wherever I want to get this bitch and shot. And I was so annoyed that these people had no concept of wilderness mm -hmm. ethics. And then over time, I have absolutely seen a shift on a lot of big accounts towards people realizing the error of their ways and trying to encourage other people uh, to behave more responsibly. Now, it's not to say that people still don't act like shitheads, but... Um, <laughs> So I don't know if the problem is just that with this huge groundswell of photographers right now, if everybody's kind of in that early part of the uh -huh. curve where they're going, well, I just got to get my shot. Uh, so I, I am hopeful, uh, maybe it's a naive hope, but I'm hopeful that people as they mature in their photography will go through those other phases and go, oh, wait, it's not just about right. me. No, I'm hopeful too. I, I, I think you're right. I think. I think we all go through that stage, you know, like we're so excited and nothing else matters and to get the shot. And then as we wisen up over time, um, we, we get more and more savvy to what the impact is. But uh, to your point, I mean, it has because of social media, I think certain locations just get pounded. And so, um, yeah, I, I like what you said, though. Um, I won't I won't I won't press you on it anymore. I, I, I think. I I appreciate your your thoughtfulness on the topic. I um I just I just hope that more people are thinking about that earlier and earlier in their in their photography journey cuz you know we do, collectively we all do have an impact on these locations whether or not we want to admit it or not. So um I appreciate your your willingness to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Of course. I mean, it's a very important, very important yeah. topic. All right, man. So a couple more things. Uh, so based on the name of the podcast, uh, F stop collaborate and listen, uh, what, what, uh, advice do you have for other landscape photographers? Well, I think they should all just stop. <laughs> <laughs> just so that um, you could be the only one. Right. Yeah. F stop. Right. <laughs> this, yeah. Um, no, my my advice for any any photographer is to try to get rid of your expectations in the field. Um, I feel like th this is a lesson that it took me uh, many years to realize myself, and so if I can pass it along, uh, I'm happy to do so. But I think a lot of us have so many expectations of, you know, oh, I'm going to go on a photography trip to, let's say, uh, Glacier National Park, and I'm going to take the most ripping wide angle 11 millimeter photo of epic thunderstorms <laughs> over Grinnell Peak with the glacier and a mountain goat and the light. And you get there, and that is 
extraordinarily unlikely to happen, right? And so you come away, so a couple of things happen. One is you come away disappointed because you had this vision in your head and the natural world just can't live up to it or it, or it does something different that, you know, is not as cool according to that expectation. So you go, well, shit, I didn't get the photo that I want. Like I'm getting skunked. This totally sucks. And the other thing that happens is these expectations are built up from seeing other people's photographs of those areas. You know, if you've ever seen any shots of Ryan Dyers from Glacier, you know what's possible. And uh, you then you go to that place and you go, oh, cool. I can't wait to get a photo of that with that, you know, that mountain goat in there with this crazy waterfall and thunderstorm. And so not only is are your your photos, are the conditions going to be disappointing because you have these expectations, but if they if they are kind of lining up with your expectations, you're just going to create derivative art that looks like somebody else's that was already there before you. And I think one of the best things you can do is really try to get rid of those expectations completely and be present in the moment and listen to the story that the scene is trying to tell you. Because when you do that, all of a sudden you're, you're, you're telling them the story of that moment instead of trying to impress your preconceived expectations onto a place. And, you know, it's sort of like a, a, an ego thing. You're making your ego drive the photography instead of letting the landscape drive the photography. And for me, that's what it's all about. I want to represent an experience of a moment in a landscape. And so if you're listening you know, maybe you're not getting those huge epic skies with the goat in front, but maybe there's a really neat beam of light that's lighting up just one part of the glacier. And if you zoom in on that, it shows all the beautiful textures. And and if you focus on that sort of thing, all of a sudden your photography becomes very personal, uh, which makes it more uniquely yours and more artistically yours following your vision as an artist so all of a sudden you're creating unique art that's starting to separate you from your peers but it's also making photography way more fun because in that moment you're going whoa look at how cool it's going this cool thing is happening over here this is amazing and i want to tell the story of that thing so makes it more fun and it helps improve your quote-unquote luck in the field you know all of a sudden you're getting all of these keepers because instead of being focused on one impossible thing that's very unlikely to happen you're just open to all the things that are happening and if you can tell the story of those things all of a sudden you come away with all these really cool unique and and compelling photographs that are specifically yours and uh, nobody else is going to have that so that would be my my best piece of advice i think for uh, any photographer now is just get rid of your expectations yeah, you just killed it, man. Like, that's exactly. I wish I wish I've had someone tell me that like three or four years ago because I went through probably two years of just being utterly frustrated by my experiences. Of course, I lived in Portland, Oregon, and so like every time I went out, it was like, oh, it's super cloudy and I can't see anything. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. It, so right. has such right. good advice because. Um, I've been trying to do that more and more myself and it, it makes the experience so much more enjoyable and, and the, the images that you come, come away with, or like you said, they're so much more personal and meaningful and, and, and they're not cookie cutter. Like you're saying, you know, like you're not 
getting that exact same composition. Like you're forced to look for other things that, that, that maybe no one else has shot before. And so I, I like that. I think that's fantastic advice. I really appreciate that, man. Um, cool. So, uh, last, uh, question, who would you want to hear on the podcast? You know who I would love to hear? Actually, I would love to hear from some, some people outside of the community that I think a lot of us exist within. So, you know, I, I, I think I, I recognize all, all the names on the, on the interview list. And so I would love to hear from some people that, uh, that other folks don't recognize, maybe photographers from say like, um, oh gosh, I'm totally blanking on his name. Uh, this is embarrassing. No, there's a, a wonderful landscape photographer from, um, from Columbia, um, Gabriel Eisenband, I think, uh, is how you pronounce his name. Okay. And he, he shoots, I mean, just beautiful, beautiful. I'm going to look up his thing right now. So I get that right name for you. Um, yeah, Gabriel Eisenband. He's a, he's a Colombian photographer. He shoots these landscapes of this country that nobody travels to and that are stunningly beautiful. And I'm sure he has a very unique perspective and an interesting perspective on what it's like, <clears throat> excuse me, to be a photographer in a place like that. Um, or maybe like a, I don't know, a really old photographer um, or, you know, old guard. Like, um, you know, who's a great guy. There's a guy who lives in this, uh, in, I forget if he lives in Bishop or he lives here in Mammoth. Um, uh, and Vern Clevenger. And he is an incredible landscape photographer. And he, you know, he's one of these guys who is backpacking around the Sierra with a four by five camera out on these 12 day cross country excursions, just like, and, and he, I think he's, he just exists outside of the current community of landscape photography, but the work that he produces is stunning. It's unbelievable. And the, and it's so cool because it's, there's no Photoshop. He just went out there with a, you know, like a big old piece of slide film and shot this. He like he just had a land, amazing landscape with amazing light, and and I mean the results are just extraordinary. And I think he would have a really cool perspective on uh, on photography as well as just some. I'm, I can't even imagine the stories he's got from rumbling around the mountains. Those film, those old film guys. Um, you know, I I feel like. The, the images that they're able to produce come come from a mentality of patience and scarcity because you know you only have like eight sheets of film with you or something like that and so you you know you're right. you're you're dialing in every single setting you're you're waiting for the exact moment that is perfect in your mind eyes mind and and boom this last year I, I went out shooting uh, Hunts Mesa and <clears throat> Monument Valley. And one of the guys that was with us was um, Adam Cavalunas. Um, and he was shooting four by five film. And it was just really interesting. I, I had more fun watching him like use his camera than I did mm. shooting because it was like the thought processes that he had to go through were so much different than we do as digital photographers because you know, he really only had like per, per, per shoot that we went, he had maybe one or two photos he could take. 
Whereas, you know, we're all like, click, 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 click. And like, oh, I'm going to do this. Pam, I'm going to switch lenses real quick. And, you know, he's like, he's got the one lens and he's got the one composition. He's just waiting, you know. And I think there's something to be said for that. So I appreciate that kind of recommendation a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. And and if Vern comes on or if he happens to listen to this, please forgive me for calling him really, really old. He's not. He's only, I think he's in his 60s. But uh, yeah, cool, man. Well, dude. Yeah. We just did like a three-hour podcast. So <laughs> shit, really? No wonder I'm so hungry. Oh man, <laughs> I'm starving. Well, thanks, man. I I appreciate you taking the time out to do this, and um, and yeah, it's been super fun, man. Yeah, my pleasure. I I so appreciate the invitation, and I hope uh, everybody listening uh, enjoyed it. And if you didn't, please send your hate mail to Brian Williams, uh, care of the NBC Center. Ha, 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 ha.